Good morning. It is good to be in the house of the Lord together. Amen. And we give thanks to the Lord for the fact that the words of the last song that we sang are actually true. That if all we have is Christ, then we have reason to say hallelujah. Praise the Lord that all we have is Christ. Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 26. I'm sorry. (laughs) Chapter 8, verse 26. I'm getting ahead of myself. We're not that far in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. It's a wonderful story. Next Sunday, just to uh, give you a heads up, next Sunday I will be taking a break from the book of Acts and we'll be um, somewhere else in Scripture. And I will be addressing um, why is it that uh, the Supreme Court ruling is such an important matter to us as Christians. So if you want to hear more about that, be here next, next Sunday. Right now we find ourselves in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. There is one word that I want to draw your attention to, is the word understanding. Understanding, what a word that is. It is quite weighty. Right now, as I speak, my hope is that you will understand the words that I'm speaking. When you interact with people and you establish conversations with, uh, with them, there must be understanding for proper communication to take place. Few things can be more detrimental to our human interactions that, than uh, misunderstandings. They can ruin communication and even relationships. Proper understanding is everything. It is not uncommon, for example, for parents to say to your children, do you understand what I mean? Uh, Do you understand my words? The word understanding is very, very important. Not surprisingly, the Bible has much to say about understanding. For instance, the book of Proverbs, in chapter 1, verse 2, says that the purpose of the book was written to know wisdom and instruction and to understand words of insight. Understanding is central to the purpose of the book of Proverbs. Why the emphasis? Well, because there is a direct connection between proper understanding and proper living. In fact, understanding gives life. In one of the most uh, beloved psalms, namely Psalm 119, which is all about God's word, in verse 144, we read, Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. And in verse 169 of the same psalm, the psalmist says, Give me understanding according to your word. Charles Bridges, Charles Bridges in his classic and very helpful exposition of Psalm 119 says about this specific verse, 144, quote, The principle of spiritual and eternal life flows from the enlightened perception of the testimonies of God, which are the revelation of himself, end quote. And then he adds the following, quote, One ray of this understanding of Scripture is of far higher value than all the intellectual or speculative knowledge in this world, end quote. This is confirmed beautifully by prophet Jeremiah, through whom God says, 
Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he what? That he understands and knows me. Central to our passage for this morning in Acts chapter 8 is the fact that a man was given understanding. Not mathematical, not scientific understanding, but the one that matters most, the understanding of divine truth. The type of understanding that brings spiritual and eternal life. The type that produces great joy. So in a real sense, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch that we are about to engage with is about seeing the living and the active Word of God in action, actively renewing a man's understanding. And my friends, that we would long, that we would long to have what the eunuch was given that day, pure, simple, spiritual understanding. In fact, as we consider our passage for this morning, let me ask you this. Is spiritual understanding something you long for? Is to know divine truth, understand divine truth, something you long for more than money, more than riches, more than successful career? Is understanding scriptural truth, the revelation of God, something you long for? This is what we need. And this, I think, is how the ancient story of the Ethiopian eunuch confronts us today. The story might not be repeatable or perfectly transferable to our current context in every single detail, but it does remind us of the truth that God still calls us to love him with our understanding, and that apart from God-given understanding, there is no life, there's only death. Moreover, this story, my friends, reveals the problem with the world. You probably understand what that is now, right? Lack of understanding, also known as foolishness. Foolishness. But this is an ancient problem, is it not? Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22. In that passage, we read about the sad spiritual condition of the people of Judah. And this is how the Lord described them. Listen to these words. For my people are foolish. Why? They know me not. They are stupid children. This is the Lord speaking. This is not my words. It's the word of the Lord. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. Lack of spiritual understanding is tragic. It leads to death and destruction. There is a whole lot of foolishness in our world. Abortion stems from foolishness. It is foolishness. But where there is understanding given by God, there is life. So as we progress through this passage this morning, I would like to bring Philip's question in verse 30 to the forefront of our thinking. Do you understand spiritual truth? Here's, here's my approach for this morning. I have three main points. The story itself, we'll walk through the story. The doctrines we can learn from the story. And the timeless principles from the story. So here's, 
Philip once again. Let's consider the story. He was, of course, one of the first deacons of the church and the same man who proclaimed Christ in Samaria. Samaria, very good. Very good. So we can assume that verse 26 finds Philip in Samaria. And it is in Samaria that Philip received a direct evangelistic mission. Let's read verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. We don't know much about the angel of the Lord that spoke there, but it was a messenger, which is one of the primary roles of angels. And he spoke. He spoke to Philip. The call of Philip did not come from within him subjectively, but objectively from outside. Philip did not get a feeling within, but he heard a voice with a specific instruction. And he was instructed, the Bible says, to go south. The distance between Jerusalem and Gaza was about 60 miles. And so the angel told Philip to go to that desert road that connects Jerusalem and Gaza. Now consider this, at this point, Philip had no idea why or what the end result would be. All Philip knew was to go to a place and he went, and he went. It is hard to deny the strange nature of Philip's call. After all, Samaria was the place to be. Samaria was the place to be. The Spirit was moving in Samaria. People were coming to Christ in Samaria. It was a massive revival in Samaria. It seems like it would have been more sense for Philip to stay in Samaria. That's where the action was. Why would you want to go to a faraway place that is desert? Why would you leave the action to go to a place that sounds quite boring? Here's why. Here's why. God made a promise to Abraham. Do you remember that promise? What was the promise? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Jesus, this blessing that was promised to Abraham was set in motion for the entire world. The Spirit of God was now actively drawing people to Christ beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem. First, with the Hellenistic Jews, then with the Samaritans. And now, the gospel is about to find its way to Africa. Africa. Philip had no idea that this rather strange call would result in the propagation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we come to verse 27. And there was an Ethiopian. As Philip made his way and was obedient, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. If you ever want to shock a Western audience, just bring up the eunuchs. Am I right? A eunuch was a male who had undergone the mutilation of his reproductive organs. Why? Well, this was done primarily so that they could serve their masters single-mindedly, without the possibility of ever needing a wife or forming a family. Due to their physical uniqueness, eunuchs were marked for life. They were marked for lives. And it was customary in some Easter 
cultures to use these men as attendants to female authorities. In this particular case, this eunuch was a personal attendant to an Ethiopian queen called Candace. Now, Ethiopia was no small nation back then. It was large and rich, located just south of Egypt. Candace probably belonged to an African dynasty similar to the Queen of Sheba, who in the Old Testament times came to visit Solomon and was very impressed with him. So the connection between Ethiopia and Jerusalem went back thousands of years. Now, the men in the story, the eunuch, though a eunuch, was very powerful. He had great authority. Since he was in charge of all her treasure, the Bible says, meaning all the riches of this queen were under his charge, this man was more like Blastus, who is described in Acts chapter, 20, verse 20, Acts chapter 12, verse 20, as Herod's chamberlain or personal attendant. In any case, this eunuch was powerful. Moreover, he was what the Bible calls a God-fearer, a God-fearer, meaning he was a Gentile who had come to believe in the God of the Jews and worshipped the God of the Jews without himself being a Jew. As such, the Bible tells us that he had acquired a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. And on his way back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, the Bible says he was reading it. Most commentators agree that what he had in his hands was something known as the Septuagint, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. As you know, this was a Hellenized world. Therefore, Greek was the main language of the people. And a man as powerful as this eunuch would have had the means to purchase a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, which the Bible says he was reading. And the Bible says that he was reading it out loud. And here's where Philip realizes why he was sent there. Remember, Philip was not a Palestinian Jew. He was a Hellenist, which means he spoke what? He spoke Greek. And in verse 29, the Bible says it is the Holy Spirit himself who instructed Philip to go over to the eunuch's chariot, at which point Philip asked them, also out loud, the central question of verse 30. Do you understand what you are reading? After admitting his need of guidance and inviting Philip to join him in verse 31, we are told the exact passage the eunuch was reading in verses 32 and 33. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer, it's silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. This is, of course, a direct quotation from Isaiah chapter 53, which is a prophecy concerning the coming of the suffering servant of Yahweh. Now, we don't know, we don't know if this eunuch had heard much about the Lord Jesus by this point. We do know, and very sadly, we know from what we have seen in the book of Acts, that the religion of Judaism was apostate. This was the generation that had killed the Lord Jesus. And so whatever the eunuch had heard in Jerusalem must have been corrupt and bent on legalism. And so he's reading the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, but without understanding. 
Now, when we read Isaiah 53, we immediately know what those words are about. Not so the eunuch. He had no gospels available to him, no book of Acts available to him, no book of Romans, no book of Ephesians, no church or pastor to go to. All the eunuch had was a Greek scroll of Isaiah and Philip, a man willing to speak, a man willing to speak. And so the eunuch's question in verse 34 makes absolute sense. Here's the question he asked Philip, about whom? As he read Isaiah 53, about whom does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? I think this question reveals more than just ignorance. It reveals a mind and a heart upon which the Spirit is already at work. It is a beautiful question. It is a Spirit-inspired question. Now, there is something we must keep in mind here at all times. We are talking about a eunuch. Don't forget that. Here is a man with financial power and political authority, yet he was a eunuch. As a God-fearer who had come to believe in the God of the Jews, he would have known something about the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, although we don't know to what extent. But given the legalistic and apostate nature of the Jewish religion by this time, this eunuch would have heard about the harsh reality imposed upon him from the law of Moses. Now, I will say more about that in just a moment. For now, you need to know that this eunuch was looking for hope. This eunuch was looking for hope. At this point in the story, he's like Nicodemus, not far from the kingdom. He wants to know who is that lamb-like figure of Isaiah 53 who died and why did he die? Philip is ready to provide the answer which we find in verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, meaning with Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. It is hard for me to imagine what must have been like for the eunuch to hear that the words of Isaiah 53 had already been fulfilled in his own lifetime in the person of a Jewish man named Jesus. Now, we don't have the details of this conversation, but based on Isaiah 53, we are well justified in believing Philip spoke first of Christ's rejection by his own people. The Jews themselves despised Jesus. Philip also would have spoken of Christ's death, for he was cut off out of the land of the living, says Isaiah. Now, we don't know this, but based on Isaiah chapter 53, Philip probably also spoke about Christ's holiness, for Isaiah said that he did no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He probably also told him about Christ's Willingness, meaning his death on the cross was no accident, but it was the will of the Lord to crush him, as Isaiah 53.10 says. The Christ did not die randomly, but as a part of an eternal plan between the Father and the Son, that Jesus was placed upon a cross, not by man, but by God himself. 
I believe Philip also would have mentioned Christ's purpose. What was the purpose of Christ's death? Substitution. Philip would have said to the eunuch that he died in the place of sinners, not for himself, but for sinners. Consider the words of Isaiah. Surely, Isaiah says, he, meaning Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On him, our iniquities. Philip would have followed this up with Christ's resurrection. As Isaiah 53, 10 also says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Imagine Philip telling the eunuch, yes, Jesus died for our sins, but he rose again. The grave is empty. Amazing, amazing news. Following this, Philip would have explained Christ's lordship. Christ's lordship. Jesus, the one who died and rose again, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is lord of all things, eunuch. And we don't know his name. I feel kind of sad calling him eunuch. But that's all we know. This Jesus who died and rose again, he's alive and he has all authority in heaven and on earth, eunuch. He's Lord of all things. And then based on verse 36 of Acts 8, Philip would have finished his explanation of the gospel with Christ's commission. At this point, Philip would have mentioned why he ended up in this desert road sharing Christ with him. Because Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all nations, even Africa, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. So here we are, eunuch. Salvation has come to you. Thus, verse 36 says, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, I know that after verse 36 normally comes verse 37. That's good math. But if you're reading from the ESV, verse 37 is not there. Although it was added as a footnote. It is a highly contested issue whether verse 37 belongs in the best of the original manuscripts. But I think that discussion is somewhat inconsequential. We know from verse 38 that the eunuch did believe in Christ. And he came to the conclusion, all I have is Christ. He was given understanding from God and he trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how was he baptized? We don't really know from this verse, so I won't make much of the mode of baptism because the the text doesn't reveal that issue. Sufficient it is to know that Philip baptized the eunuch because the eunuch believed in the Lord Jesus. He believed in his substitutionary death on the cross. He believed that his sins had been paid for by the blood of Christ. 
that the blood of Jesus was the price given to the Father and that by his death he could be forgiven of all his sins and that Jesus was buried and subsequently came out of the grave. The eunuch was given supernatural understanding to see the glory of Christ in the gospel preached by Philip. And after this, the Bible says Philip was supernaturally taken by the Spirit to another place where he continued to preach Christ, and the eunuch never saw him again, but now he had joy. That's the story. It only took me, what, 20 minutes? That's a long time for a story. But what do we learn from it? What do we learn from this story? Let me give you some doctrines that are important for our lives as Christians John Calvin said, and I quote, When we read the word of God, we do it to no other purpose but to be instructed in good doctrine. That is to say, in doctrine that is profitable to our salvation. End quote. So let's follow Calvin's instruction and consider these profitable doctrines with me from our passage. The first doctrine we learn, the first doctrine, the providence of God, the providence of God of God. I want to be careful and intentional in pointing out that this encounter between Philip and the eunuch did not happen accidentally. And I want to say this directly because it is possible some of you some of you might be left with an open theist taste in your mouth and that taste is bitter. We don't want that taste in our mouth from an open theist point of view. God had to learn that the Ethiopian eunuch was on the road and reacted to that knowledge by sending Philip to take advantage of that moment because according to open theism, God learns the progress of history as it develops, just like we do. But that's bad news. That's not the God of the Bible. This is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God always works all things according to the counsel of his will, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. What happened on that road was not a random occurrence, but was guided from beginning to end by the providential hand of God, just like your life is all in the hands of God. That moment, that encounter had already been decreed in the eternal plan of God. The Ethiopian eunuch, was one of God's elect, and this was the God-determined moment in which salvation was applied to his soul. And the same is true of you when you came to Christ. That moment in time had been decreed by God because he loves you, because he loves you. And this is a story of the fact that God does work all things according to the counsel of his will. Can you imagine this? Can you think about this? The fact that God has moved everything in your life to bring you to the point of faith. He has moved everything in your life from birth to death. Everything in your life is God's providence just so that you would come to know him in Christ. That's the first doctrine, the providence of God. The second doctrine, the personhood of the Spirit. The personhood of the Spirit, vitally important doctrine. We must be, be clear on this. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force or blind energy. 
The Spirit is a he, not an it. It was the Spirit who spoke. He said to Philip to go to the Ethiopian. The Spirit himself spoke. As far as I know, impersonal energies don't talk. The Spirit is a he. Moreover, the Spirit operates in the world in perfect harmony with the other members of the Trinity. The Spirit's words to Philip can also be said to be God's words to Philip. It is the Spirit, the one who applies divine truth to the heart and the finished work of Jesus to us for our salvation. He's the one who brings union with Christ, and he's still working in us. He is working in us, not it, he is. Third doctrine, the saviorhood of Jesus. The saviorhood of Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch was saved that day because his eyes were opened to Jesus as savior. There is no other Savior. As we heard from the prophet Isaiah, the rejection of Christ, the holiness of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the lordship of Christ are all one blessing given to us by God. He's the Savior of sinners. There is no other. No amount of morality can save you, my friend. No amount of conservative values can save you, my friend. No politician can save you. No religious leader, no political party or seminars can save you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only Savior of sinners. Immediately related to this is the fourth doctrine that we learn. The objectivity of our faith. The objectivity of our faith. Brothers and sisters, here is our faith. Here it is. Here it is, the objectivity of our faith. I want to quote John Calvin, who said this about the Word of God. Quote, the Word of God is faith's objective and its goal, to which it must forever look. If faith turns away from the Word, it is no longer faith. The Word is the foundation on which faith rests and is supported. And then Calvin adds, quote, The Word is like a mirror in which faith must see and gaze upon God, end quote. When the Ethiopian eunuch read Isaiah 53, he was reading God's disclosure of himself in his son, Jesus Christ. As Calvin says, and quote, Faith seeks God and finds him only in Christ. And I would add, as revealed in his written word. So here's, here's a, a word of advice for all of us. If you lack in faith, if you're lacking in faith, if your faith is weak, Read God's word and rest upon the words you read. Here is our faith. Here's the foundation of our faith. It is in the word of God. Here's the fifth doctrine. The universality of the church. The universality of the church. The church started with the Jews, but it expanded into all the corners of the earth. Praise God, it is not confined to one ethnicity or geographical point. 
in Christ and because of the Spirit, our Guatemala team did not waste their time this past week. Skin color, cultural backgrounds, social context, no, they don't matter anymore. The gospel is for all, for everyone. Sixth doctrine, the gracefulness of salvation. The gracefulness of salvation. It is very unlikely the eunuch woke up that day thinking, today is the day of salvation for me. I will do this and that and be saved. Not at all. That is very unlikely. On that day, salvation came to him. He did not go looking for Christ. Christ came to him. Salvation is by grace, by the grace of our Lord Jesus. He saved us not because of works done by us, but by his grace and his grace alone. And the, the last doctrine that we learn, the need of men. The need of men. So as Christians, we must remember what is one of the central presuppositions, which is a presupposition rooted, of course, in biblical authority. But as we interact with the world, as we live the Christian life in the world, we have a presupposition, and it is as follows. Apart from God's grace in Christ, men are dead in their trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. What is the greatest need of the world? The greatest need of the world is not to end abortion per se. It's for men to be born again. It's for men to be born again. This is critical. This is critical. Philip did not go to that eunuch to convince him to join Judaism or to join a political movement or a party. Philip knew that this man needed a new heart. And nothing but the gospel of Jesus can do that. Nothing but the gospel of Jesus can give a man a new heart. The problem with man is the deadness of his soul, not the decisions he makes. Not the decisions he makes. A few weeks ago, I sat down with someone I, I had never met before. This person had many problems, many issues. And so I sat there listening to a whole list of issues, very important issues, difficult issues, painful issues. When it was finally my time to speak, I just said to this person, you just gave me a list of symptoms. You just gave me a list of symptoms. Now let me tell you about the real problem, your heart. Let's talk about your heart. You know what pornography is? You know what pornography is? It's a problem of the heart. It's a problem of the heart. At the end of the conversation with this person, the person said, no one had ever told me this before. No one had ever told me before that the problem was my heart, the blackness of the heart. Abortion, for example, is an issue not of politics, but of the heart, because it is rebellion against the Lord Jesus manifested in terms of hatred against the image of God in babies. 
And since man cannot destroy Jesus, they cannot touch God, what do they do? They seek to destroy the image of God. This, by the way, is the reason why it is appropriate for pastors to speak clearly about the evils of abortion. Because abortion is a rejection of the Lordship of Christ and His Word. And the only thing that can reverse this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? We keep preaching. We keep preaching. Let me give you some timeless principles from Philip and the eunuch. I'm losing my voice for some reason. Some water here? No, that's okay. Yeah, you can give me some water. I'm losing my voice. Not the right time. (laughs) I can tell you that much. All right. Here's timeless principles from Philip. Philip. Circumstances change, but the message never does. Circumstances change, but the message never does. In Samaria, Philip preached Christ. To the eunuch, Philip preached Christ. Thank you, brother. Different audiences, different circumstances, different cultural backgrounds, different contexts, different educational levels, different worldviews, different religion ideas, different challenges, yet the message was one and the same. Philip did not see the need to modify the central message of Christ as Lord, whether you are a Samaritan living in the darkness of the occult, or an Ethiopian eunuch close to the kingdom, the same message was preached, Christ as Lord. The second timeless principle from Philip is this. The power is in the living word, not in our intellect. The power is in the living word, not in our intellect. The eunuch never saw Jesus with his eyes. He was not an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus. And yet, through the reading of the word and the operations of the Spirit within his heart, this man is now in union with the Lord. And all Philip did was to show him Jesus in the Scriptures. Number three. Number three. Don't, don't be nervous for me. We'll get through this. <laughs> I hear a lot of you saying, <clears throat> Number three, there is beauty. There is beauty in preaching Christ. There is beauty in preaching Christ. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 10, Verse 15, the Apostle Paul quotes these words. How beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is important for us to remember. What Philip did 
with the eunuch was beautiful. And let us not forget that proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to the world is beautiful. For through our words, we speak Christ and we spread the beauty of the Lord. Don't let the world convince you otherwise. Don't let the world convince you otherwise. Don't let the world convince you that to preach the gospel is bigoted, mean-spirited, or hateful. Preaching the gospel is beautiful. You will, find, you will not find a more beautiful engagement than when you allow your lips to be occupied with the spread of the beauty of the Lord in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why we do what we do. We are not spreading anything other than the message that Jesus Christ is Lord. Nothing is more beautiful. <clears throat> and let's finish with some timeless lessons from the eunuch. Timeless lessons from the eunuch. Number one, out of the example of the eunuch, we must seek to grow in our understanding of biblical truth. <clears throat> we must seek to grow in our understanding of biblical truth. This is our responsibility as Christians. This is a lesson we learned from the eunuch. How do we do this? First, confess your ongoing need for greater understanding. Confess your need for greater understanding. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. You know this verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean. Do not lean on your own understanding. The eunuch's humble admission of ignorance regarding Isaiah 53 and his need of help is a lesson for all of us. We all need assistance if we will continue to grow in our understanding of biblical truth. In contrast, consider this. Consider this. Consider the fools. What do fools do? Well, according to Romans 1, they claim to be what? Wise. They claim to be wise. What a lesson we learn from the eunuch. The great Martin Lloyd-Jones said, quote, Come to the Word of God and say, I want the truth whatever it costs me. Plead with God to give you clear sight, perfect vision, and to make you whole. Second, Second thing we do to grow in understanding is think it over, meditate. Consider the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. This is the power of biblical meditation. <clears throat> Make it your habit to mentally abide in the truth of Scripture, and the Lord will grant you understanding. Number two, number two, we're almost done. <laughs> we're almost done. Thank the Lord. 
Number two, here's a lesson from the eunuch. Our joy is in the Lord. Our joy is in the Lord. Do you notice something about the Samaritans and the eunuch, what they have in common? The Samaritans and the eunuch were different in countless ways. But the end result of knowing Christ was the same for both of them. Joy. Joy. When Christ is preached, joy follows, for he is the source of all joy. Now, not to be too explicit or to be crude, but I imagine it would take quite a bit of good news to cheer up a eunuch. Wouldn't you say? We might not know the specifics of the circumstances in Samaria and their citizens, but we can know much about the circumstances of the eunuch. The life of a eunuch was very unique life, to put it very, very mildly. And much could be said about his life, but I want just to point out this. What is happening here between Philip and the eunuch is monumental. It's monumental. There's a detail you might not be thinking about. And this detail makes this story truly, truly glorious. It answers the question, why did the eunuch rejoice? You see, the law of Moses prohibited, prohibited eunuchs from gathering with the rest of the assembly of God. They were excluded from the formal meeting with the rest of the people of God. It says so explicitly in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. They lived a life of exclusion. They were excluded from the people of God. But in Isaiah 56, interestingly, it was Isaiah, Isaiah 56, the same prophet that taught the eunuch about Jesus, now says, Isaiah 56, verses 3 and 5. Listen to this. This is a, a promise, a prophecy. Isaiah says, Let not the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. That is a promise that Isaiah, the same one that preached the gospel to the eunuch, three chapters later, a promise that they, the eunuchs, will be given a name within the household of God. And from Jeremiah, from Isaiah, you can draw a straight line to Jesus, which is my final point. What is the biggest lesson we learn from the story of the eunuch? Jesus makes all things new. Jesus makes all things new. The fact that salvation reached this man from Ethiopia is one thing. The fact that he was a eunuch was another altogether. Yet now, because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, this eunuch 
once forbidden to come, is now welcomed and given full access into the presence of God as a son, a son of the Most High God, a son whose name shall never be cut off from the people of God, and all because of the Lord Jesus Christ who makes all things new. In a, th- in a sense, nothing changed for this man. He remained a eunuch, but in another sense, everything changed for him. Now in Jesus, he has been granted new life. Do you realize that in our day of identity politics, this eunuch would have been told to make much of his condition as a eunuch. He would have been told to make it his very identity in our day. But through the gospel of Jesus, he was freed. Freed to love God as a son. And so can you. Confess Jesus as Lord this morning and you too will be free. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. We thank you for the hope that it gives us. We thank you for the power of the gospel to bring people from all tribes and nations and tongues and cultural backgrounds together under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a world that is divided over so many things, help us to remain confident in the gospel and in the power of your word to bring true, lasting unity a unity that is given to us in the Spirit. And help us, Father, to be like Philip, to be people who are ready and willing to open our mouths and speak the glorious gospel to a world that is lost. Help us, Lord, to be bold and courageous as we bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of the world. And so, Father, in these times of darkness, make us light unto all the nations. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.